A Russian court refuses to release an American journalist who was arrested more than two weeks ago on accusations of spying. I can only say how troubling it was to see Evan, an innocent journalist, held in these circumstances. As Ukraine prepares for more Russian bombardment, it's welcoming the arrival of long-awaited U.S.-made Patriot missile defense systems. They can destroy the missiles on the distance of 150 kilometers, and also they are possible to destroy the ballistic missiles, which would save a lot of lives. And later in the program, women are paying some of the highest prices for Russia's war in Ukraine. Today is Wednesday, April 19th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening. I'm Lori London in Washington. A Russian court has refused to release U.S. journalist Evan Gershevich from jail while he awaits trial on accusations that he spied on Russia while on a reporting assignment last month. VOA's senior diplomatic correspondent Cindy Sane reports. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich made his first public appearance in a Moscow courtroom Tuesday after being arrested nearly three weeks ago on espionage charges. The 31-year-old reporter asked to be detained under house arrest while awaiting trial, but the judge ruled that he must remain in jail. Gershkovich's Russian lawyer spoke to reporters after the hearing. Maria Korchagina is the lawyer for Evan Gershkovich. He would like to uh, prove that he is non guilty and uh, he would like to prove that there is place for uh, freedom of uh, journalistic. U.S. Ambassador to Russia Lynn Tracy spoke to reporters after the hearing. I can only say how troubling it was to see Evan, an innocent journalist, held in these circumstances. I was able to meet Evan yesterday at Lafortova Prison. It was the first time we were granted consular access since his wrongful detention more than two weeks ago. I can report that he is in good health and remains strong despite his circumstances. We will continue to provide all appropriate support to Evan and his family, and we expect Russian authorities to provide continued consular access to Evan. The charges against Evan are baseless, and we call on the Russian Federation to immediately release him. Russia claims, without producing evidence, that Gershkovich was caught red-handed while spying, collecting what it claimed were state secrets about a military-industrial complex. The Wall Street Journal and the U.S. government have rejected the charge of espionage, which, if he were to be convicted, carries a sentence of up to 20 years in prison. The U.S. State Department last week declared that Gershkovich is wrongfully detained. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre condemned the Moscow court ruling and also called for the immediate release of U.S. citizen Paul Whelan whom the U.S. has also designated as wrongfully detained. Look, we're, we're deeply concerned uh, by the news that Russia will continue to wrongfully detain Evan uh, following a sham judicial uh, proceeding today, and that's what we saw uh, earlier today. The Biden-Harris administration is engaging with Russia through uh, every available channel to bring Evan 
and uh, fellow American Paul uh, Whalen Home, who is also a, a priority for us. I am innocent of any charge resulting from this potential kidnapping. Former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan has been held in Russia for more than four years. The U.S. says both Gershkovich and Whelan deserve to go home to their families. Cindy Sane, VOA News. Journalist and political activist Vladimir Karamurza, who has been an outspoken critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin, was sentenced Monday to 25 years in jail in Russia for condemning the war in Ukraine. VOA Russia Services' Rafael Sokov sat down with Karamurza's wife and his attorney. So uh, the cr criminal case initiated against Vladimir in, uh, by the Russian authorities uh, just from the beginning, initially, had nothing to do with justice, had nothing to do with the law. And the initiation was absolutely unlawful. There was a lawful investigation, and this, tri this trial had nothing to do with law also. So the lawyers of Vladimir Karamurza will put forward appeal to this uh, verdict, absolutely absurd verdict, uh, about prison sentence to 25 years of the prison colony of strict, uh, of strict regime. And after that, after the, de after the decision, after the verdict of the appealing station, we don't hope that uh, it would be successful, unfortunately, because there is no any independence of our judge, of our legal system at all. They, they all depend on the presidential power, on Putin's regime. And after that, he will be sent to any strict regime colony anywhere in Russia we even do, do, uh, are not aware where it, would, uh, where it will be, but it's necessary to try to follow him and to uh, help him to make legal assistance, to make defense, maybe any uh, international uh, legal protection measures. And so our struggle go, uh, must go on. And please, Evgenia, short, uh, how will you going to fight for your husband in the upcoming months and years? Um. Well, um, it's uh, always scary to hear about a uh, struggle that will go on for not months, but years, you know. Um, I will continue for as long as it takes me, because uh, this is someone I love and deeply respect. I'm fighting for the father of my children, and uh, of course I want him home, back home. But I am devastated by everything that's going on. I am devastated as a mother as uh, the wife of a political prisoner and as a Russian citizen. I'm devastated by the aggressive war that the Russian state is leading against Ukraine, killing thousands of people and displacing millions. I mean, eight million refugees. This is a humanitarian, an absolutely mind-boggling humanitarian catastrophe that we're witnessing. And I realize that this is the result of over two decades of impunity of Vladimir Putin's regime. And I believe that it is very important for the world to understand that internal repression and external aggression are connected to each other absolutely closely. They go hand in hand. They, uh, they go like they're two sides of the same coin. And this is how the situation should be approached. Russia will only stop being a threat to itself and its neighbors when it becomes a democracy. There is no other way. And I know what a clear vision 
of Russia's future, my husband has and has always had. And it's very important for the world to understand that internal repression and external aggression are connected to each other absolutely closely. They go hand in hand. They, uh, they go like they're two sides of the same coin. And this is how the situation should be approached. Russia will only stop being a threat to itself and its neighbors when it becomes a democracy. There is no other way. And I know what a clear vision of Russia's future my husband has and has always had. And he's been risking his life for that vision. And I uh, believe that the world needs to stand with people who, like my husband, are fighting and risking their lives and risking their freedoms to bring changes to Russia. Um, so I will stand by my husband and continue fighting. VOA Russia's Rafael Sokov speaking with Evgenia Karamurza and Vadim Prokhorov on the sentencing of Vladimir Karamurza. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has been spending the last few days meeting with soldiers on the front lines where some of the most active fighting is taking place. It comes as Russian President Vladimir Putin met with his military leaders and troops in territories occupied by Moscow's forces this week. I talked about it all with Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kyiv. President Zelensky was visiting Donetsk region, one of the hottest spots again in the Donetsk region uh, in Avdiivka yesterday. This is one of the also places which is under very fierce fighting. And President Zelensky met with Ukrainian soldiers. He awarded some of the soldiers. He talked to them. He had a meeting with the head of the military command in there uh, and checked situation himself. And also he visited soldiers in the hospitals and also awarded them and thanked them for their service. And today is another trip for President Zelensky, this time to the border with Belarus and Poland and checking the situation at the border, particularly border with Belarus. He was checking the defense structure, the preparation for possible new attack and new assault from that side. Also, he met with border guards and also thanked them for their service and he today he had a meeting in Wallen region as well with military units and they also discussed the strengthen of the state border in that region. And I understand Ukraine's defense minister said today, Wednesday, that Patriot air defense systems had arrived in the country. I know Ukrainian officials have been really lobbying hard with allies to provide these advanced weapons. This is a pretty significant development. Yes, exactly. Uh, Ukrainian minister of defense, Mr. Reznikov officially announced that patriots have arrived. He said that this is, this is basically what Ukrainians were waiting for so long. He also said that Ukrainian soldiers who were trained to use these patriots, they did their best to learn how to use the systems as, as fast as possible. This is definitely a great, uh, great news for Ukraine, especially considering that on Friday there is another Rammstein meeting, which everyone expects that Ukraine will ask for additional equipment and faster supplies because this preparation for counteroffensive is ongoing and uh, of course Ukraine needs these supplies as soon as possible. As you mentioned, uh, Ukrainian forces have been spending several months training in the U.S. and in Europe on how to use these systems. It sounds like these advanced weapons are critically important because they're capable of shooting down enemy missiles. Extremely important. This is true. And uh, uh, what is more, even more important is that, and this was actually confirmed by the spokesperson of Ukrainian air defense, such systems as Patriots, they can destroy the missiles on the distance of 150 kilometers and all 
also they are possible to destroy the ballistic missiles, which is uh, also crucial for Ukraine and would save a lot of lives. So this is why everyone were waiting for the systems so much. And this is why Ukrainian soldiers were having these trainings and were trying to complete them as soon as possible. Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kyiv. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. Russia's war in Ukraine is taking an enormous toll on women. For many humanitarian organizations, women are at the heart of the Ukraine crisis response. I talked about it with International Rescue Committee Senior Global Communications Officer for the Ukraine crisis, Johanna Norhorska, who says women continue to pay the highest price for the war. The war in Ukraine has, of course, devastated so many. Can you explain a little bit about how it's really impacting women in particular? At the RSC, we've continuously emphasized that women continue to pay the highest price for the war in Ukraine and that the Ukraine crisis is a protection crisis uh, because the vast majority of people affected by it are women and girls. So one year on, since since the war in Ukraine escalated, over 90% of refugees who fled the country are women and children, and many of them face exploitation during their journey or leave their homes where they had already experienced some sort of violence. So a few people talk about it, but two-thirds of women in Ukraine before the experience of war actually had experienced some sort of domestic-based or other types of, of gender-based violence in Ukraine. And when you think about humanitarian needs in country, 18 million people need humanitarian aid in Ukraine today and 45% are women so 50% of population almost in need in the country are women and as in every humanitarian crisis the ongoing war in Ukraine has triggered increased levels of violence used as a weapon of war but also borne witness to escalating cases of domestic violence so women and girls are not only at risk of abuse on their way to safety while they're fleeing the country but oftentimes also do not find the protection they really need upon arrival to their destination points in Europe. When you think about a country like Poland, for example, the dire situation they're already in is compounded by pre-existing legal barriers to sexual and reproductive health care. The most shocking thing for me, one of the most shocking things as I was, I was in Ukraine, was that people are queuing for drinking water in the East. And think about, you know, taking care of your menstrual health, for example, when you don't have access to clean water. Women have very unique needs. I know that when the war started, I mean, there were people that were delivering babies in metro stations and childbirth mortality is also a big issue. This war has really been having a detrimental effect on women's mental, physical, sexual um, and reproductive health. So what I've seen and what I've been hearing from our teams in Ukraine, uh, which are responding to women's needs through providing safe spaces, a range of protection services, such as distributing dignity kits or providing psychosocial support, is that right now, you know, we've talked a lot about gender-based violence as a weapon of war, but what women are telling them right now is that they really suffer because of lack of safety in collective shelters. There is still fighting ongoing in the East. When women are fleeing from the East to other parts of country in Ukraine, there's oftentimes staying in collective shelters shelters and collective centers. And there are as many as three to five families living in one room. So when you think about
about the situation. There is, you know, lack of dignity or lack of safety in, in such accommodation. There are insufficient and insecure bathroom facilities. What the women have been telling us as well is that they are really anxious about their husbands or partners returning uh, from the army because having faced, you know, with men fighting with what they are witnessing at the front lines, women are really very petrified of what kind of mental mental impact it's going to have on their partners and if they're going to recognize their husband returning from the front lines. What about issues of access to healthcare, particularly with many hospitals and roads destroyed? Yeah, absolutely. And especially in the east of the country where humanitarian actors don't really have uh, full access. But also we see that many people living, especially in the east, in so-called newly accessible areas that have recently returned under government control, they haven't had access to proper medical care for over a year now, right? So the International Rescue Committee, for example, is running a mobile health clinic that's reaching people in rural areas around Kharkiv. It's one of the cities that really has endured massive hostilities. And oftentimes, you know, they reach people who are very ashamed. They say, we are sorry we neglected themselves. So this is the first time they're seeing a doctor. So definitely the impact of children, the impact of mothers, the rising numbers of of people who don't have access to hospital or access to maternity care is, is definitely a problem there as well. And you mentioned the financial aspect of it. The International Co-Rescue Committee ran a needs assessment uh, among people during the winter time. And we found out that the war has almost universal impacts. Over 90% of people are resorting to so-called negative coping strategies, which means that they're either exhausting their savings or finding ways to cope that will long-term have a very negative impact on them. I actually visited Kharkiv a month ago and I was speaking to people who for over a year, including women, who had absolutely absolutely zero source of income for over a year, especially during winter means that you don't have the money to, to pay for electricity in areas where there is electricity. So many homes were basically not heated. There was one mother who was showing me how the children develop like a skin condition, some kind of frostbite because of the stress and anxiety that they had to endure and the cold as well, because she didn't have the money to pay for, for heating and to secure heating in the house during winter in, in a region where temperatures reached to minus 20. And, you know, when we talk about women being sore breadwinners as well, so both in the countries, if we, if men go to the front lines, women are the sole breadwinners of primary caretakers in their families. We see it particularly in countries like Poland, who host refugees, women who fled Ukraine. They struggle to find jobs that match their experience. They struggle to find jobs that would allow them to really cover for the family. So these are women who left the men behind and they're oftentimes stuck in the limbo as well. They do face specific barriers to access the job market. And one of these barriers is like the child care. So imagine you're a woman who left her, the entire family and everything she had and arrived to a country with a plastic bag. We've seen millions of, of instances of this happening. You arrive with one plastic bag and with your children and you stay in a collective shelter. And who's going to take care of your children when you go to work or who's going to support you with, with your children? when you're looking for jobs. This is something where where we're really trying to address as well. International Rescue Committee Senior Global Communications Officer for the Ukraine Crisis, Johanna Nahorska. 
The Baltic countries have remained an important source of support for Ukraine as Russia's assault drags on. In Latvia, people have kept up efforts to assist the Ukrainian military while accepting Ukrainian refugees and making them feel welcome in an exile that for many seems to have no end in sight. Marcus Harton narrates this report by Ricardo Marquina in the Latvian capital, Riga. When the war broke out, Renenis Posnaks, a businessman in Riga, decided to help the Ukrainian troops by providing cars donated by his friends. He posted an ad on Twitter. More than a year later, the Latvian response has exceeded any expectations. I was hoping that people will donate for two, maybe, cars. So now we are at 1,000. 40 or something like that. These cars, most of them with four-wheel drive, will serve at the front, some as tactical vehicles, others as ambulances. Their life expectancies in Ukraine are very limited. Most are destroyed or seriously damaged within a few months. That is why these volunteers are now building a special vehicle for the Ukrainian forces, an innovation they tell us is indispensable. We all understand that Ukraine is also fighting for, for us, for our future and, and freedom, because we know uh, Russia very, very well. We know that uh, they will not stop if they will not be stopped. Many families come to this non-governmental organization called Your Friends in search of clothes, toys, household appliances, anything that can make the exile into which Putin's bombs have forced them a little more bearable. The United Nations says more than 40,000 people have sought refuge in this country of just over 1.8 million. Alexandra Yasenova is a volunteer at the NGO on the outskirts of Riga. She says they work to assist two completely different groups, the Ukrainian families in Latvia and the Ukrainian army at the front. The army is currently a priority for us. It means we supply a great deal of consignments for the army in particular. These are thermal underwear, the paraffin stoves that are also used for heating as a source of light. They can also be used as a small hot plate to heat up food. But perhaps one of the greatest benefits that Latvia can offer Ukrainians is integration and not making them feel dependent on aid and charity. At the Latvian National Opera and Ballet Theater, several artists have been offered work. Among them is Angelina, a dancer from Kharkiv who fled to Latvia at the beginning of the war and who from the very beginning wanted to be independent. Her dream is to return soon to a peaceful Ukraine. I so much wish this war will be ended as soon as possible because every day it means human lives are being taken, civilians are dying, as well as very many military. We are just fighting for our country to be able to exist, to recover peace in the country, independence and freedom that have always belonged to us. With Putin's war in Ukraine in its second year, the solidarity effort of the Europeans will continue to be necessary for a long time. 
For Ricardo Marquina in Riga, Marcus Harton, VOA News. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage of Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of the entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.